Welcome into another edition of the Dane and Victory podcast, available on musketeerreport.com and all of your other favorite streaming platforms. I am Rick, and for this edition of the podcast, the post-Crosstown shootout edition, I am joined by the legend, Brian Snow, following Xavier's 77-69 win over the Cincinnati Bearcats. Nice. Snow, what'd you? I mean, that was a pretty entertaining Crosstown shootout, was it not? Yeah, I I certainly thought the first half was really entertaining. The second half got a little weird at times, but I thought the first half was a very entertaining game. Uh, Neither team came close to guarding anybody, which helped. But, you know, it is what it is. It's because they're both offensive juggernauts, clearly. Uh, But, yeah, that was was an entertaining game, and I, I think it was a fun watch. So you mentioned the fact that no one played defense in the first half, which you uh, look at the first half shooting totals. (laughs) Xavier shot 51.9% from the field in the first half. Um, On the flip side, UC shot 46.7% from the field in the first half. Neither one of them were lighting it up from three-point range, so it was a lot of getting right to the rim, blowing by people off the dribble, ball screens that the defensive assignments just completely broke down. What was your take on what was going on for both teams? Because I think it was kind of different on both ends on what the issues were. Uh, Xavier, I think it was more just sloppiness and lack of communication on certain things. I think there like, was one other factor, though, too. Once Zach Fremantle got his first foul in the game, it was very clear that his whole plan, and maybe this was coming from the bench, was do not pick up a second foul. Because he gave up like three or four buckets at the rim where he just completely quit on the play. But I'm going to transition here. Zach Fremantle put together the worst, let's see here, what is it, 16-9 and nine I've ever seen in my life. I would agree with I that. I thought he was atrocious. Yeah, it was one of the worst games we've seen from him, aside from the one where you know he like took himself out of it on purpose with yeah. multiple technical fouls. But like yeah, he I, finished with 15 and 9. If you just look at a box score, it's like, oh, Fremantle played pretty well. He was bad. Well, I think that speaks to how much more talented he was than anyone else on the floor, really, in that game. Yeah. I mean, like, he was bad. And he lost his mind after he got called for a foul he didn't agree with. And when Zach loses his mind, he goes full Jalen Reynolds. And I think that was a big part because if we're being honest, like Brian Griffin, when he was in was more effective than Zach Freeman. I agree. Uh, And I think the message board is really on the Brian Griffin train full bore. And part of the thing about Brian Griffin that stands out so much when he comes into the game is he rebounds the hell out of the basketball. And this team like judging off the numbers today where they accounted for zero offensive rebounds throughout a 40 minute basketball game as an entire team. They don't rebound it very well. Yeah. So Rick, when let's discuss in, how impossible that stat is. It's unbelievable. Like I never thought I would see a team and I don't want to say Xavier dominated the game because that's inaccurate, but look like the better team and certainly, you know, feel like they were, in position to win the entire game. Maybe even when they're behind by four points, you're like, ah, you know, they're in good position where they can win the game and not get an offensive rebound. That's possible. Like, not only is that impossible on its surface, it's impossible in the game of basketball to not miss a shot so badly that it goes to your team once or twice. Like, you see a couple of their offensive rebounds. Like, one was just complete hustle by uh, Jeremiah Davenport, which Zach Free 
be absolutely embarrassed about. Um, then, but like a couple that like I think one Mamadou Diara got off an airball or something, and then there was like two just wayward scud missiles off the side of the rim. Like, how does that not happen in a basketball game? I it's don't. Impossible. Yeah, I don't understand how a ball is not tipped out. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean Z- Xavier shot it fairly well in this game. They go seven for 18 from three, but it's not like they didn't have some long rebounds that were bouncing around. It's, it's simply almost impossible to play a 40 minute basketball game and not have one offensive rebound fall into your hands throughout the game. And here, here's the big part of that, Brian. It's not like they weren't playing hard. It's not a situation where it's like, we're criticizing for them for that. It's just like, it's an anomaly because they Played really hard throughout the game, I thought, except for maybe like one four-minute war in the second half where they got a little lackadaisical. They were playing some weird lineups and stuff. But for the most part, they had a great effort, and they just somehow didn't come up with an offensive rebound, which I agree, one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. And here's the thing. It wasn't like they didn't rebound during the game. I mean, I think their defensive rebound rate was 80%, which is tremendous. Yeah, like you said, the the ones you see got for the most part were – weird situations where balls again just fall to you because it happens during a basketball game and and to speak to that they only got three second chance points so it was i mean it wasn't like they were getting stick backs and bully and xavier on the rim like uh, a couple years ago when trayvon blewett scored 40 points and xavier still lost because they couldn't get a defensive rebound inside It, it wasn't that situation it's just a very bizarre game and then can we discuss how chris vote at seven foot 280 pounds gets one rebound in 32 minutes uh, it was not a good night for Chris Vogt. And I think that was a big part of why Xavier, though it was the game was very much in question going into even the final few minutes, why Xavier looked like the better team. Because you see in many ways is relying on Chris Vogt to be kind of a go-to guy for them. And he was getting his ass kicked by Jason Carter for much of the game inside. Yeah, and I want to point this out. I think it deserves mention. And I know people get really frustrated when I say this. Jason Carter had six point rebounds and two assists and one block today. His defense was unbelievable. He battled his ass off. Like, unbelievable. There was one possession in the second half that either resulted in a a bad UC shot or a turnover or, or something like that where they were dead set to get the ball to vote and not get it to him because of the way Carter was playing post defense. Well, and I mean... Chris Vogt is not exactly known as the toughest guy in the world. And you saw that while he was trying to gain position on possessions like that. I mean, him fighting against Jason Carter was for the most part, a losing battle. I mean, he goes four for uh, four for five from the field. I think in this one, yeah, four for five from the field with eight points, but it's like, he got a couple easy ones because for whatever reason, you know, Xavier wasn't able to do their work early. He sealed them low enough where there was nothing they were going to be able to do at that point. But on the possessions where Xavier had like a set defense and he was, they were trying to work the ball into him against Jason Carter. He got nothing accomplished. Yeah. I mean, five field goal attempts, five. And it's not like they're not running stuff for him. It's not like they're not trying to get him the ball. And, and I know everyone thinks that like either their coach sucks or the opposing coach sucks because that's just the way fans are. There's like Bill Belichick's the only good football in the country, maybe Nick Saban, Saban as well. And then like the only good basketball coach is Mike Krzyzewski and the rest of these idiots are dumber than like go Buckeyes 84. But like John Brandon knows what the hell he's doing. Like it wasn't like he just like 
couldn't figure out like, hey, we've got a guy who's bigger than everybody else. Let's not throw him the ball. Like Xavier made it hard on him, specifically Jason Carter. Yeah, I thought it was, like you said, one of the better six point two rebound to assist performances you'll see from a player. And look, I think people sometimes get tired of hearing praise for Jason Carter while he is limited. And he is. It would be great if they had a Ben Stanley to go with him. So you could pair another guy at the four who gives you a little more offense. Maybe that would be wonderful. And I'm sure the staff is you've already seen them start to play some of their wings at the four a little bit to give them more, a little more offense at times. And sometimes when they do that, Carter will even slide down to the five. They've done all types of weird things this year, but Jason Carter, especially in this game, you saw it plays a very valuable role to this team that, that is uh quite often understated because of some of his offensive limitations and, and quite honestly, some of his willingness to be unselfish. Like he's a guy that can go without getting numbers on the offensive end. And sometimes you need a guy or two like that in your lineup. You just can't have too many of them. Like Rick, do you agree with me? If you had to pick one person's performance today, Jason Carter or Zach Fremantle, you're going with Jason Carter. Yes, I, I would. I would definitely say Carter played better in his role than Fremantle did in his without question. I mean, as I said, I know fans is on the mess get get upset with that, but there's there's a just a functional reality here. What he did today was more valuable than what Zach Fremantle did. Well, and speaking about best performances of the day, uh, Paul Scruggs, Brian. I know he's had some bigger games before, um, specifically last year. He had a couple where he really carried the team, but. In terms of seniors and moments that last and all that type of stuff, the nostalgia and what you look back on, like this was a pretty great moment for Paul Scruggs and a hell of a way to go out in the Crosstown shootout. He was awesome, really, from start to finish. Yeah, I mean, 25 rebounds, five assists, two turns. Um, he was he was so far and away the best player on the court. It wasn't even close. Uh, he, he won the game for Xavier. I mean, Cincinnati had no answer for him. Uh, he did a good job, not a great job, but a good job defensively. And then offensively, he was the best player on the court. It's an even up for debate. Well, and he was and, so efficient too. I mean, he goes six or yeah. 10 from the field, two missed threes. And really one of them was a terrible shot. It was really like the only big mistake or noticeable mistake I felt like he had throughout the entire game. Um, but other than that, like offensively, he was attacking. He was making plays off of ball screens and he was his decision-making and taking care of the ball at the end of the games. And some of the things that he has struggled with through this first little five-game stretch and at times throughout his career, he was really damn good today in all those areas. Yeah, I mean, there's not much. And when you're playing like that, if you take one bad shot, you're entitled to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no issue. It was it was in a, a bad moment, and it was one of those things where, like, because he his decision-making was so good, it stood out amongst his play today. But, yeah, like you said, I mean, if that's what you're griping about, you had one hell of a game. Yeah. Another guy that I thought really impacted the game, especially at the end, he became a problem for UC, and Travis Steele just called his number multiple times in a row to kind of put the game on ice, was Dwan Odom. And, you know, with what UC is trying to do with their ball screen coverage, it, it it's tough to do that if the other point guard is way more athletic than your guards. Yeah, and Xavier kept it simple at the end. Uh, instead of Travis Steele trying to be the smartest guy in the room, which, which oftentimes coaches can do, and we're going to run our offense because this is what I do, and I worked on this offense, and I spent ungodly amounts of hours studying this offense in the offseason. He said – 
middle ball screen. Let's put this seven, let's make this seven footer guard somebody and move it. And what that result in, I think foul, foul, foul. Yeah. I and mean, to Dewan, to Dewan's credit, he went what five of seven, five of six, six of eight, six of eight. Yeah. But I'm just saying at oh, the down end, the stretch. Yeah. Yeah. He was five for six down the stretch from the foul line. He made him. Yeah. And a couple key ones in like the final minute plus maybe, you know, to kind of yeah. fully put the game on ice and you know, there's going to be some ups and downs. Um, we've already seen, you know, the struggles that he had against Eastern Kentucky's press where he looked a little shell-shocked, and maybe that'll be his one moment where that happens, or maybe there'll be a few more throughout the season. But the great thing that he's already shown is that, that doesn't linger at all. Like, his confidence hasn't been shaken. It, you don't have to worry about the next team pressing him because we saw UC try to press him today and, and try to do the same thing a little bit with their run and jump, and he wasn't phased at all. He handled the ball well throughout the game. Yeah, I mean, it was he. He was. I'm not. He wasn't great, but he he was no. good. And but you get two plays. turnovers as your yeah. point guard playing 20 minutes in the shootout your first time. You'll take that. Yeah, he missed one shot, which was a I believe like a kind of eight foot kind of floater in the first half or something mm-hmm. like that. Wide that open floater. Yeah. Um, was good, and we need to talk about Colby Jones. That dude's a stud. Yeah, I think that's the impression a lot of fans are going to come away with from this game. Uh, you know, we had talked about the fact that Colby Jones was likely to start coming into the season. The whole contact tracing protocol thing derailed that. But Travis Steele, you could see how much confidence he has in Colby Jones when he's the first guy off the bench. He plays nine minutes in the first half. Immediately when he enters the game, he's guarding the opposing team's best player, who, by the way, was torching you for the first four to eight minutes, whatever it was, where where Keith Williams was playing really well there. So uh, you just see the confidence and how much respect the coaching staff already has for the freshman right off the bat there. Yeah, when Colby didn't have rubber legs over himself, which happened a couple times, he was really damn good. And, you know, he took one kind of maybe, what was it, maybe a 17-footer, I want to say, that looked really smooth, finished one at the rim, made some great passes. You could see the decision-making, the – the ability to rebound four rebounds in 17 minutes. That's good for a wing. Yeah. Uh, Three assists, he, one turnover. Yeah. Had a great steal. Um, where he used his length and I think it created turned into a bucket for Xavier. Um, he, he was really good. Well, and legitimately, I thought him coming in to guard Keith Williams, and not that he he was on him the entire game or anything like that. And, and Keith ended up with 18 points to lead UC, but Keith at the beginning was really efficient. He was getting to the rim. He was scoring. All of a sudden, he ends up, yeah, he had 18 points, but he goes 6 of 16 from the field. He cooled off in a big way through the middle portion of the game. He got some points in the second half, I know, and later on in the game. But I thought, you know, the way he started, it was like a little worrisome for Xavier of like, is he going to have a monster night? And as it turned out, he was their leading scorer, but it wasn't really a good offensive performance at all. And I thought Colby Jones coming in to slow him down a little bit was, uh, was a big part of that. Yeah, I believe he had what the first seven points. It was uh, two layups and a, I want to say sounds on right first, on his first three shots. And let's say it was three for three. Um, let's say it was three for four. That means he went three for twelve the rest of the game. So yeah. clearly after the first four minute war, they they kind of figured the deal out. Yeah, you're right. He went uh, three for three to start the game with the layup, the three pointer, another layup before he missed a three. 
and he had a missed layup after that. But still, yeah, you're right. I mean, he he uh, they did a good job on him after that initial start. And Colby Jones was kind of the turning point there initially to to cool Keith Williams down and, and take him out of his groove during the, the first few wars of the game. So, uh, Brian, I've talked about it a lot. I think you've somewhat agreed with the idea that there are some similarities to Colby Jones and like a young Josh Hart. And I think you just see that with the versatility, the the readiness and making winning plays. It's not that he's going to be super flashy or score a ton of points necessarily, but he already just gets it and has that innate feel for the game. Yeah. I mean, he, he's got a lot of things you can't teach uh, feel, um, you know, just kind of good size, understanding IQ doesn't, doesn't need to shoot to be effective. He, he does a lot of things well. And um, certainly once he gets his win back and, you know, Xavier, I think the next step for Xavier is figuring out the right rotations. Like Kiki Tandy's got to play more. Now Kiki wasn't good today. So that, that needs to be said, but he also needs to play more than 11 minutes. He's your most explosive score, but how can you put Kiki in a certain lineup combination to make him most effective? Um, you know, who's Colby Jones most effective with who is Adam Kunkel most effective with. And I think that's going to be the challenge for Xavier upcoming and and Xavier's going to do it via data, make no mistake about it. Uh, What lineup combinations, what roles fit this roster the best because, you know, it's hard to play 11, 12 guys. um, And they could be looking at a situation like that. So, well, and that's the thing is it's going to be really hard to do this in any way you do it. I don't know that there's necessarily a right or a wrong way, but it's going to be really hard to not take certain guys out of the flow at times and, and sort of yeah. make it tough on them to get in a rhythm and find opportunities. And that's just the nature of the beast when you have a roster this deep. But what we also saw is I'm not saying Xavier would have been screwed in this game. If they didn't have those newcomers and Kiki Tandy played like this, they still would have had a chance in it for sure. But what you saw is, okay, Kiki's not there today and and he's sort of seeming checking out because his offensive game isn't going well. So now he's not going to guard and he seemed disengaged throughout the game. Okay, no problem. We've got other options now and other options that can really give us something. And that's what you didn't have a week ago without those three additions. Mm -hmm. So I I think that definitely, and you know, I think the staff's going to have to figure out, figure out the best way to work it. And that's why they get paid money real quick on Kiki though. We, they need him to mature a little bit. I mean, it can't be, you know, he misses a shot or whatever. Doesn't, doesn't get the minutes he wanted right off the bat or got subbed out early or something. And now he's checked out the rest of the game. And, and look, I know like people are, are posting videos. I got tagged in a couple already where after the game, he just sort of stumbles off the bench, walking around, not excited at all. Travis comes over, gives him high five. He doesn't respond to it at all. Kiki's kind of that way as a person, always has been. He's not a guy who shows emotion. He has the same personality and same facial expression at all times. So I don't put a ton of stock into that stuff. But I will say as someone who was at the game, one, his even if he is that person and that's his personality, his body language has to get better. Just that's that's part of being the team, right? If you're winning a game like that or, or whatever, your teammates are playing well, be a part of the team, show a little bit of excitement. It'll go, it'll go a long way. Two, there's no question about it just based on the way he played in that game that he had kind of taken himself out of it based on whatever happened early or the fact that he didn't get back in the way he wanted to. They need him to grow up because he is an important piece of this team with his shooting and scoring ability. And let's be honest, that's the reason he's not starting because he hasn't brought it every day. 
I mean, like, do, do you think they wanted to start a freshman at point guard? No. He just outplayed the other guy because the other guy didn't feel like playing certain days. So that's going to come down to Kiki Tandy, like you said, you know, growing up, maturing, you know, which is all part of a growth process and realizing like this take, I have to be this guy. I have to be, and and you're not going to make four threes every game, but you have to be the guy taking good shots every game. You have to be the guy showing energy every game, you know, being locked in, acting like you care. It's, It's not too much to ask. No, it's really not. I mean, like quite honestly, to this point so far this season, Kiki Tandy has been a bad basketball player in every aspect of the game aside from shooting and scoring. You can't have that. I mean, you can't have a guy who's a, a complete zero and maybe even a liability in some areas if he's not hitting threes at a, at a crazy rate because that's not going to happen consistently enough. So while he is still important, I do think you saw today that Adam Kunkel coming back and Colby Jones coming back specifically makes it so that Xavier isn't as reliant on Kiki Tandy and they're not going to be in as much trouble on the nights where he doesn't have it at the same time. They need him to get it together a little bit and he, and he's capable of it. So um, that's certainly one of the bigger storylines I think to watch over the next few games as they start to head into conference play here. Yeah. I mean, he's got to be better. Like there's, it's pretty simple. He needs to be better. It's kind of like Carlos Dunlap. You know, he didn't feel like playing for eight weeks. Like the coaches, that's on you. It's not too much to ask to care. I think pretty much the only guy that we haven't talked about in some capacity in this game right now is the other newcomer who got some action early in this one, CJ Wiltshire. He checked in around the 1030 mark in the first half, missed a three-pointer, picked up a foul, and then checked out around the 741 mark. That's all we saw of him, which... Not a surprise. I mean, in this game, that was never, you know, until the final minutes where Xavier pulled away a little bit more with free throws, it never got above a five-point lead on either side. He's not going to be a top-level defender. And with all the rotations Travis was trying out and guys he was trying to stick in there, it was just going to be a hard time to try to find C.J. Wilcher's first minutes if, if he wasn't, like, coming in blazing and hitting a couple threes right off the bench immediately. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing is – and. CJ was always the guy at the back of the rotation to begin with this year and it Kunkel to compete with. And he's coming off of, you know, quarantine. Like they got him in the game. He got his feet wet. You know, he got a wide open look. He didn't make it. You know, that happens. And, you know, go get him next, uh, whatever day, Wednesday or whenever the hell they play, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. So is there anything else from the game, from the box score that jumped out at you that you found interesting while you were, watching or looking at stats afterwards the fact that Xavier got to the foul line 25 times I I think says something um it says they they were the aggressor the entire game now sometimes they were too aggressive but they were the aggressor the entire game and yeah they got fouled a couple times late you know quasi-intentionally but for the most part they got to the line a whole bunch because they put themselves in a position to get to the line. And when this team is doing that, what that means is driving lanes are open. What that means is, you know, shooters are spreading the court and, and they've got a chance. And when they're playing aggressive and downhill, especially when it's guys like Colby Jones or Dewan Odom, or even Paul Scruggs playing recently, that means the likelihood of something good happening is, is very high because those guys know what to do when they get downhill, whether that's 
go for a layup, kick to an open shooter, whatever it may be. Like, there's no time today where I was watching the game and I thought, like, man, that was just a moronic decision off. Whereas how many times did that happen last year? Yeah, without, well, without question. And the thing is, it never really got better last year. You know, we kept for really two years, we were kind of waiting for the team to show signs of improvement in that regard. And they just never could get that feel or figure it out. And we said a lot of it was personnel related. And I truly believe that. And I still believe it. And I think you're already seeing this team is young and they're going to have some moments like the EKU game where, you know, maybe your freshman point guard who you're relying heavily upon gets a little shell shocked and struggles. But more often than not, the IQ is going to be higher with this team. The overall feel is going to be higher with this team. And it's only improving as you add guys like Kunkel and Jones and even Wilcher, who uh, I think has tremendous feel when, when he's in there and playing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's easier to watch. It just is. Even when this team's going to be losing and even when they don't score as, as easily, it's still more fun basketball, more entertaining basketball, more aesthetically pleasing basketball to watch this season so far through the first six games. I feel pretty safe in saying they're not going to go undefeated. Yep. I think that's right. So they will lose and people will be really mad because of it, but that's just, you know, they're going to at least look like a team that has an idea of what they're doing. And that's really, that's what trap been working this roster build too. And last year, like for all of Najee Marshall's greatness, you can't teach a guy to see someone on the court. You know, I, I, the, another stat that jumped out to me in this game was the three-point shooting. And it's not that like 7 of 18, 38.9% is an it, ungodly number or anything. Or, but to me, they've been pretty much relying on two guys to, to carry them. It's like Nate Johnson and Kiki Tandy got to get hot and hit multiple threes to, for them to have a good shooting night. Tonight, you get two from Johnson. You get two from Freeman. You get two from Kunkel. You get one from Carter. Like, this was the type of game that you envisioned this team being able to put together in terms of shooting where, okay, Kiki doesn't even have a good night. You still go seven of 18. You're able to win the game and stay ahead with a couple big threes throughout key moments. Um, and it's spread out through multiple guys. You got different options. You're tougher to guard. You got big men drawing the seven foot defender, Chris vote away from the basket and stretching the court. That's what I think a lot of people wanted this team to be capable of coming in. And tonight they really showed that to me for the first time uh, with their perimeter shooting. Yeah, and like you said, that that's the makeup of this roster as now it's currently constructed is, is you have Kunkel who's a shooter. I mean, he can do a little bit more, but at the end of the day, he he's a shooter because he's a good player because he, he fries it. Um, And when you add that with Scruggs and Johnson and, and you know, Fremantle's reliable – Tandy, you know, like Wiltshire, like all of a sudden it's like, that's a lot of dudes who you have to respect and guard. Uh, the other thing is, like you said, like seven of 18 might not seem like a lot. Last year, that would seem like a miracle of God. Whereas you came away from this game saying, all right, they shot the ball. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I and mean, that's the thing. If Kiki Tandy goes 0 for 1, that's pretty much a non-factor. And after the game, you're looking at seven threes at a 38% clip, like, Oh my God. You know, I don't think anyone would expect that necessarily. So yeah, this that's definitely signs of improvement and shows you that they're a different team from what they were last season. It just, it just is. I mean, it's a different roster altogether and it's what we talked about. Um, 
I'm not saying it feels, I feel vindicated or anything like that, but it's just like when you see it coming together, you're kind of like, oh yeah, there it is. Because for the first five games, it was kind of like, man, the nights that Kiki Tandy doesn't hit four threes, are they going to be able to shoot enough? I really don't know. And uh, it turns out getting some of those other guys back will definitely make a difference. And and that's what it takes. It takes multiple options. So if if one guy has a bad night, you got two or three others to be in the mix for you. Yeah, and it's like I said on the message board before the game, I picked, what, 71-66, I think, Xavier. And a big reason for that was Kunkel being eligible because I thought it took some variance of a bad shooting night from Tandy away or a bad shooting night from Nate Johnson away. Like, because you added that other guy, like of like four or five good shooters all shooting badly on the same day. It's, it's low. Just like the odds of having four or five good shooters shoot good on the same day is low. But once you add, when you have four or five of them, odds are two or three are going to have a good day or whatever, you know. So you've got multiple options, threes. And I think that was something that makes a difference. Whereas, when you're watching UC, for example, you know, like, all right, Keith Williams, you know, like he can bang one in occasionally, you know, I guess Rappelis Ivanovskis has somewhat shown it in the past, but you know, DeJulius is probably their shooter. Like Jeremiah Dad bangs in two on you. You're willing to eat that as a defense. Yeah. Like, nothing, nothing you can do about that. You'll go up that shot every time. Yeah. Like if Mike Adams Woods bangs in some threes, like, you'll deal with that. Tari Eason wants to try one. Fine. Like it's just a different feel when you're watching guys shoot. Yeah. And they, you know, I think uh, John Brandon's still trying to get that roster to a place where he feels comfortable in terms of their skill and offense facing some of the similar things that Travis did when he came in, you know, that uh, I'm not saying they had the exact same rosters, but John likes to play a style that's much more like, you know, the, the Chris Mack style when they were playing well with Trayvon Blewett's and JP McCarrick's skilled guys who maybe you're giving up a little something defensively. I mean, the man played Drew McDonald at center and won a lot with it. You know what I mean? Like he's clearly willing to give up a little defense if he can score the ball. And I just don't think he has that skill level yet in UC system. So it definitely shows you that difference. And it's what Travis was dealing with the past two years where the feel, the skill just wasn't quite there to do what they wanted to do this year. It is. And you're seeing a more fun style. I want to ask you about Travis real quick because um, I, I don't want to make this too dramatic. It's it is what it is. You know, it's it's six and zero. It's a team that had played in their second game, and I don't think UC is a great team this year. I think they can be okay still. They're they're they got to get better. But to me, this felt like a big win for from Travis Steele's perspective, just because you know they haven't lived up to expectations or what at least what fans would expect from Xavier, which is clearly being in the tournament the last two seasons. They're they're staring down that po- possibility again this year with a, a younger team again that's trying to figure things out here. But to go in and beat John Brandon again, get another win uh, against your rival in the Crosstown shootout, uh, do it in their place, do it with a team where you're mixing and matching lineups and you fell behind right before those those final few minutes and you figured out a way to, to close the game out in strong fashion. To me, I felt like that was one of those statement games where Travis Steele won some people over today. It felt like with this win. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, anytime you beat UC, like people are going to like that. Let's just be real. Um, and then I think people kind of, I think people are now starting to see the vision and understanding what Travis trying to build. And, you know, the, the fact that it took, it, it took some time because of the, where the roster was. And that's just, you know, I think people are starting to see it after tonight. 
or after today, whatever we want to say. And yeah. that that's, that's the, it's like one, he beat the rival. And then two, you could see the long-term payoff coming. Even if it doesn't totally happen this year, you can see that payoff happening. Yeah, and I'm not naive enough to uh, not understand that if they lose by eight to Oklahoma in the coming days, Travis will suck again and there will be some type of meltdown on the message board to a certain extent. I I get that. There's always going to be fans who overreact to one game. But the general things I was seeing on Twitter and on the message board from fans after the game is it, it felt like people kind of saw tonight, like you said, the vision. It's like, oh, this this uh this looks the way we wanted to see. We're seeing some of the improvements we wanted to see. And that five and zero didn't feel all that convincing, but this six and zero feels a whole lot better. Now I'm starting to believe this team might be okay and and they might have a chance. That's the general vibe I was getting reading post-game comments. And um I I you know I think that it made it feel like a big win and and rightfully so. It was it, I thought it was a good coaching job by this staff dealing with what they were dealing with. And you can look at it and say, hey, they had the better players. It was their sixth game as opposed to just their second game. They should have been in position to win that game. But the fact of the matter is it was close. They even found themselves down on the road late. And despite all the mixing and matching with lineups, they kept everybody engaged enough, got the starters who had been the main guys all along on the floor to close it out. And uh, I thought it was it was a good look for the coaching staff all around. They, they had a good day. And I think the, the fan base took note of that. Can, can we point out something that I don't find insignificant that seems to be people are losing here? What's that? The head coach makes the schedule. Like, you, you can play more games. You can play less games. The head coach makes that schedule. Yeah, they, they chose to only play one game that wasn't going to prepare them all that well. I mean, let's be honest. Lipscomb was a horrible first game to play, especially if you were trying to use it as a tune-up for the crosstown shootout because they were playing a zone and a Princeton offense, nothing of yeah. which you've probably worked on in practice leading up to that game. But, like, when you choose to play in a secret closed scrimmage instead of playing a game, that's a conscious decision. When Ohio State's MTE blows up and your MTE blows up, and you choose not to be a part of something with Ohio State, that's your decision. Now you can say, I don't want to leave campus, or, you know, it was too calm. That's fine. But, like, at the end of the day, we all make decisions in life and we have to deal with them. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I, UC doesn't get to use this as like an excuse or anything for what, like, I, I you can look at it from two, from, you can see both angles at the same time while understanding the reality situation. They did this to themselves. It doesn't, it doesn't make it a good idea. It doesn't mean it was uh, the right thing to do competitively at the same time that it's a clear factor in the UC will probably be a different team in a few weeks than they are right now. They've got a lot to figure out a lot of moving pieces, some new guys that they're relying on with transfers that even in their starting lineup. So, you know, I get both sides of it. Yes, they are going to be a different team in a few weeks. And this was a tough second game to play, especially after Lipscomb. And like you said, they were fully in control of that situation. It's on them that they were playing their second game of the year against Xavier. That it was clearly within their power. And the funny part of it was, is they were kind of taking shots at Xavier for pulling out of the Orlando deal. And now you look back at this and once again, per usual, Mario Mercurio was on top of it before anyone else. He got Xavier out of Orlando in time to schedule their own deal, get people committed for it and get Xavier six games under their belt before a lot of people have been able to play even two or three. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I would, ass- I don't know this to be fact. I haven't looked, but I would assume Xavier leads the country. Yeah. yeah they, they've pretty much been in the lead all along with each game they play. So I can't imagine anyone else is up to six at this point based on last check when uh, no one else had five. So, um, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's worth pointing out that Travis and Mario are, are pretty good at what they do. And maybe that's more the point, more so than UC was in control of their own destiny and, and didn't do anything about it. Pointing out how good Xavier is at always being in control of these things and doing what they can when they can, it's, uh, it's worth pointing out as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Xavier made a conscious effort and said, now, I'm still not sure it was, you know, school. In Tennessee Tech or whatever was the best idea, but like at the end of the day, you're six and zero, so whatever. But like they said, we want to schedule and play as many games as we can because we don't know when we're not going to be able to. Right, and that's and, what they did. And look how things have played out. I mean, not just with basketball, but even with football, and how you know there there have been issues with teams trying to get enough games in to be eligible for things. You know, I mean, getting yeah. to 13 games is a legit concern for some teams potentially. So like, I'm not sure DePaul's ever going to play a basketball game this season. Right. It's, it's a real possibility that some teams will not get to 13. In fact, I'd be shocked if everyone did get to 13 games. So uh, Xavier has done a good job of controlling what they can control. And I'll also say with what we've seen from the selection committee in past years, where they clearly valued win total, uh, for Xavier to try to get the highest win total they can out of anyone in the entire country, maybe not a bad idea. Yeah. Cause they're going to have enough quality games in the big East. Yeah. So strength of schedule will be all right. Play, per usual. You know, however many they play, they play. I, I, I don't know, but it's just going to be, but I mean like this whole talk of like the schedule, it, it just baffles me. It's like, you know, it's not like, the NCA came out and made UC schedule for them, your schedule for them. The institutions made their schedules. Actually, I have one more thing for you, Snow, about Travis Steele that I wanted to ask you. Uh, I don't know if you saw it happen because I, I don't think the TV captured it necessarily, but it was asked about a lot in the post-game press conferences. The final media timeout, Travis comes over to his huddle, smacks Zach Freeman on the face, hits a few other players. Like, And I mean, I'm not talking like abusively like he's Bobby Gonzalez. I'm talking like, you know, like your football players getting hyped before a game. Kind of gives them a little smack, starts yelling. They're like doing the Matthew McConaughey, pounding their chest things, steals smacking chairs and like they're yelling and like i've never seen one travis andrew Steele act like that too often it was it seemed a little out of character it was also hilarious to watch and uh clearly it worked because they finished off the game very well i just wondered if you had any take on uh travis Steele starting a media timeout by walking over and smacking zach Fremantle in the face and and zach by the way said he actually smacked me pretty hard i was a little surprised <laughs> <laughs> what I wish I could have seen it because that seems absolutely hilarious. It was hilarious. Keenan Singleton from uh, Channel Nine was dying laughing at, when we were talking about it. So, like the, the thought of Travis Steele like smacking a human being is just amazing to me. Uh, but I guess while, it worked. while acting like a hype man too. Yeah, like I guess it worked. Like I didn't know he was actually coordinated enough to like smack someone in the face as intended. So good for Travis. I mean, well, it, bad. And- Back, apparently but good for Travis on the flip side in terms of coordination we did have the John Brannon sniper shot did you see that where John <laughs> Brannon hit the deck yeah uh Eric Bossy sent me the footage of that one and I was like oh that's not good sniper tough, tough I think look for a tall guy like an assistance foot actually but it still was funny 
I don't think so. That was my initial thought. I thought he tripped over. It was like Gabe Madsen or uh, maybe some other white walk-on sitting at the end of the bench. But then when I looked back, like it looked like you could clearly see his shoes, and he kind of just started to run a little bit and got one of his toes underneath of him and just went face first, didn't pick his foot up high enough, which I've been there. I've done that exact thing before. But, man, for a guy who's like 6'6 and that thin, it is a, that is a funny sight to see on TV, right? Like yeah, that, that's a longer fall to the ground than me or you have. <laughs> it did not look graceful, that is for sure. <laughs> there was a lot of falling going on in that game. Like, there was. Kiki, not Kiki. Literally, Colby Jones, like he like fell twice, or he just like stumbled while dribbling once at half court, and I thought he was going to completely wipe out. And it, it was bizarre. I'll say like Rapless Ivan because I thought he was a, a pretty nice player. The two games I've seen him play now for UC, and there's times he was very coordinated and looked pretty skilled when he was doing things on offense. But there were two or three moments where that man lost his balance and fell down throughout the game, where you would have thought we were like. I don't know at a, a sixth grade game where they don't make cuts yet or something or watching the B teams play. Like he just looked so uncoordinated and unfortunate falling to the ground in, in that game while guys were flying around him at, at two or three different moments. Uh, it, it caught me off guard and I found myself chuckling with Adam Baum up there. So let's be honest about something. Like the only reason Rapalus Ivanowskis doesn't look like a tremendous athlete is because he's on a basketball court with superhumans. Yeah. Like if he was on a basketball court with, you know, like, even like a good high school athlete, he's going to look like a fantastic athlete. Yeah. And, and, and he played, he is pretty good. Like, again, he looked yeah. plenty coordinated. And it's and like, and smooth. like sometimes these guys, they just trip. It's bizarre. <laughs> I'm like thinking to myself, like, I can do that. Like what? How is that possible? But the, you know, some guys, you know, there's athletic falls where guys fall to the ground and it's like, they're doing yeah. a roll. They get back or whatever. But this was one of those where like the, the, the friend who's drunk and just can't catch themselves on their way down. And he's like flailing his arm kind of and rolling back. I mean, if you can go back and watch it throughout the game, if anyone's watching it, you, you see the few moments, like send me a, a quick video on Twitter or something of it, because it was hilarious. I was cracking up up there with Adam bomb while we were watching it. So there was also a moment where he hit a three early um, right before he got his first technical, he hit a three, his only technical, he had a three and then he chest bump Zach Freeman on the way down the court. And Zach Freeman, I like was totally taken aback by it and looked to the ref. Like, did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> it was hysterical, you know, considering who Zach Freeman is and what he was doing the entire game in terms of trash talking and thumping his chest and things. So Rick, what, what was it like in the building today? A weird. Um, I was glad I was there. It was fun basketball to watch. I didn't think it really took away from like the energy or intensity of the players too much. I thought they still got after it and there's no bad blood between these teams right now in terms of the guys. So you weren't expecting like fights or anything like that. I don't think there would have been that with fans in the building. They don't have those types of guys on the teams right now, for, really, to be honest. So um, Are they going to do a patty cake with each other in the suburbs? It, yeah. I mean, is, is Chris Vogt going to start taking swings at uh, Colby Jones or something? You know, I mean, like, <laughs> come, come on. We got, we got uh, Colby Jones is like, uh, probably going to read Harvard level literature to him after the game or something. If they, yeah, if they I mean, need to have like, a discussion, they're going to have like a spelling bee contest. <laughs> right. Um, maybe he'll help watch his kid after the game. I, I don't know. Yeah. Babysit him. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I just, uh, it was, it was weird because there's just no fans. And then like you had the moments, there were a couple funny things I thought of where it's like, you know, a, a big thing will happen for UC and normally you just have that roar and they have that little uh, sound meter up in the, you know, the one side of the building in yeah. the end zone and it'll bounce up. Well, this game, like you'd have 
a big shot happen and the first thing you would hear would be John Brandon's daughters like cheering and you'd see the sound meter go up like just above the green into the yellow and <laughs> and credit to those girls because they brought the, the energy and the only energy they really had over there. And then on the flip side, like there were times where UC was shooting free throws and Xavier's managers sitting behind the bench were like at a seventh grade basketball tournament or something. They were doing the whole like rebound right before they'd shoot, trying to screw them up. And it kind of felt like it was working at times. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty, uh, maybe Bush League, some might say, and uh, juvenile, (laughs) but it was pretty hilarious because in a gym where there is no crowd noise, that's the only thing you hear. I mean, you couldn't miss it. So that that was kind of the things that made it weird. There was just no, nothing coming from the, the crowd at all, except for the occasional cheers from people you could directly notice and pick out. Brandon twins bringing, bringing the heat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, when I'd look up at the sound meter to see how high they were registering, I thought that was uh, a pretty good sign of where the game was at from a atmosphere perspective. Yeah, intriguing. All right. Well, I think that does it for this edition of the Dana Victory Podcast, available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms. For the legend, Brian Snow, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.